turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to preach from verse 21 to verse 32. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to verse 32. You have heard that it has been said by those of old time, you shall not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Verily I say unto you, you shall by no means come out until you have paid the uttermost farthing. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be thrown into hell. It has been said, whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, except for the reason of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. A gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, this is your word. As we look at it today, we pray that it would have a free course in our heart and in our mind, that you would speak to us wondrous things out of your law. May you remind us of this precious truth and help us to store it in our heart so that we would not sin against you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Jesus introduced his Someone on the Mount are preaching to his disciples where he talked about the participants and the particulars of his kingdom. He taught about the character of his disciples, the true meaning of happiness, and the eternal blessing that flows from a Christ-centered life. Such people influence the earth in a similar way that salt influences food. They have an effect in a dark world by being the light. And the end goal of all this, as we have seen in the past, is the glory 
of God. So let your light so shine before people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' teaching had authority, contrasted to the teachers of his day. And as a result of his refreshing presentation of God, his nature, his power, his character, his kingdom, some may have thought he came to abolish the Old Testament. He says, rather, that he came to fulfill it, for none of God's words shall fall to the ground. They shall not fall by the wayside. Everything he says shall be fulfilled. To see or enter that kingdom and experience this fulfillment, one must be righteous before God. And that cannot be earned by external appearances like the Pharisees attempted to, but by a righteousness that comes from God, that flows from the heart, demonstrating a heart-filled obedience to the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is what Jesus will start talking specifically about from verse 21. And he will give practical examples from God's law about this heart-filled obedience to the spirit of the law. With surgical precision, he distinguishes between the external observances of the letter of the law from the internal obedience of the spirit of the law. Today we'll see three of those areas. Anger, adultery, and annulment. Annulment, adultery, and anger. Annulment, if you may, for the sake of my alliteration, stands for divorce. You have heard verse 21. Your version may say, the ancients have said, this is the interpretation of God's law which you have heard and has been handed down over the years. But I say unto you, this is an authoritative I. God himself is speaking and says, I say unto you, let me tell you what God's will and God's heart is. First of all, you shall not kill, verse 21. You shall not kill. That is the sixth commandment. What is required in the sixth commandment? Some people ask themselves in the past. What does this commandment require of you and me? The sixth commandment, which says you shall not kill, or we shall not murder, requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Everything lawfully possible to preserve life. Is there something forbidden in the sixth commandment? Absolutely. It forbids the taking away of our own life. Even our own laws in our own country, although you say, this is my life, I can do whatever I want with it, not so. The law of God forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatever may be that tends thereto. That is what is forbidden in the commandment, you shall not kill, not taking life unjustly. There are cases where life may be taken, such as in, in self-defense, um, in war, for example, um, in capital punishment, and so on, those may be required for one reason or the other. Jesus says in verse 21, shall not kill. Whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That person shall be liable to the court. That's what has been said. 
But I say, a declarative statement, God says, Jesus spoke as one with authority. I say, if you are angry with your brother, ah, and then here is the issue. Someone may say, I have never killed anyone. Maybe that's the letter of the law. What's the spirit of the law, Jesus says? There is a connection between anger and murder. The issue is anger. If you have been angry with your brother without a reason, for no good reason, some versions of the Bible don't have without a cause or for any reason, but the point is not lost anyway. If you are angry, there are consequences. The consequences you see here is that you shall be in danger of the judgment. You shall be guilty before the court. Now you wonder which court is this? You may see it as the high court, so to speak. Look at this from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 to verse 19. God providing the administration of justice told Moses, judges and officers you shall make in all your gates which the Lord your God gives you throughout their tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not wrest judgment. You shall not respect persons. You shall not take a gift, for a gift blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Isn't that what judges are supposed to do? Simply uphold the law. Listen to the, to the cases that are being presented before them, determine the case, and deliver the right judgment. The Jehoshaphat reestablished this when they were lost among the Israelites. These judges and officers in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, he said to the judges in verse 6, Take heed what you do, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Therefore now, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God. There is no respect of persons. There is no taking of gifts. Some judges may be bribed, but God is the just judge. He cannot be bribed. He doesn't take gifts. He doesn't pervert judgment. He delivers a just judgment. Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the counsel. Jesus tells us in verse 22. What does that word mean? It means good for nothing. Remember when I was preaching recently, I said someone may use that as a verbal abuse. Are you good for nothing? That's what it means. Your version may even say empty-headed. Whoever shall say to their, to their brother, to their friend, you empty-head. It's an Aramaic, it was an Aramaic term of contempt. And thus it means to treat someone with contempt things that sometimes we take for granted. Jesus says that person shall be guilty, shall be danger of the council, shall be guilty before, if you may, the Supreme Court. And this, is, this was the highest council or court in the land, also called the Sanhedrin. We've looked at that in detail in the past. It was a Supreme Court in the Jewish religious system comprising of 70 elite, prominent and religious leaders. It gets even worse. Whoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You fool, another word that you hear people abusing, it's abusing people with. Insulting his brother is what Jesus says, whoever insults the brother, whoever calls them stupid, whoever calls them immoral, this person 
shall be in danger of hellfire. And you say, ah, such a trivial thing, and you're in danger of hellfire. Yes, trivial to you, not trivial before God. Insults are the natural overflow of anger, isn't it? When people are angry with each other, they start trading insults. You see that with politicians. You see that with other people, not these people here. But you see that with other people. They start verbally abusing each other. This, Jesus says, be careful. You are in danger of hellfire. You shall stand before God's court. Never mind standing before the high court, the supreme court. Now this person is standing before the court of God himself and is liable to the hell of fire. That person shall be guilty enough to go into hellfire. There was an area near Jerusalem, which in Greek is called Gehenna, or in English, the Valley of Hinnom. Ezekiel translates it as the Valley of Slaughter. It's where people offered child sacrifices in the Old Testament, especially during the reigns of Manasseh and Ahaz. It was a horrible place. And because of pain and weeping and torture, that place became synonymous with eternal punishment. In Jesus' day, it was a garbage dumping site where there were fires that were constantly burning. And Jesus uses this idea when he talks about hell. It's one of the words that is translated as hell. Their fire is not quenched, Jesus will say. That was a vivid picture which people would see regularly every day. And Jesus used Gehenna as symbolic for hell. Verbally abusing is serious in God's eyes, even leading to eternal damnation. What then shall you do? What shall you do? Verse 23. If you bring your gift before the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. If you remember someone you are angry with, if you recall someone you treated with contempt, if your memory takes you back to someone you insulted by what you said or by what you did, this is what this therefore is for in verse 23. It links past action to, to, to present event. It connects what happened with what you are doing. Everything a Christian did matters today. And therefore, do what is right. Do what is just. Do what is fair. Your past words and deeds influence your present faith and life. If you're presenting your offering during worship, then God reminds you of someone who is angry with you. Leave it before. Leave it in front of. Leave it at the altar. Don't go with it. Purpose to give it. Purpose to finish your act of worship. Jesus is deliberate. Don't go with your gift. You may go and change your mind or leave it there. You came to worship. That was the purpose why you came, isn't it? Then the Lord reminded you, you have offended someone. Make sure you finish the act of worship. So we read here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. If your brother has something against you. In other words, you did something that offended him. What shall you do? Do not wait. Go and tell him. We read, Jesus will let us say in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, if your brother shall trespass against you. In other words, he did something that offended you. Do not wait. Go and tell him his fault. 
has something against you, don't wait for him to come. You did something to them, don't wait for them to come. Go and tell that person. Go and resolve the issue. If you are a couple sleeping at night and you are on the opposite sides of the bed, resolve that issue. Be the bigger woman. Be the bigger man. Turn around and say, I am sorry. I offended you. I was wrong. Or else you are going to fall off your bed while you are sleeping and break your neck because of your anger. Because you are sleeping on the edge of the bed. And you have all this, I don't know what, six by six, seven by six, whatever size of bed that you have in your house. Just turn around and apologize and tell your husband or your wife the issue. Seek reconciliation. And when the issue is resolved, by the way, who will care whether the issue, who, who initiated the resolving of the issue? The point is the issue was resolved and your marriage is better and your family is stronger. So Jesus says, first be reconciled to your brother, that brother who has something against you. They may not accept your apology. They may not agree with your humble pursuit of forgiveness, but do it for the Lord's name, for your conscience sake, for your heart, and for your arm so that he doesn't break. Romans chapter 12 verse 18 says, if it be possible, as much as it lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes we think that is everyone outside there. Not even if those people inside your house, inside your home. Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says, Oh, no man anything but to love one another. Let there be no debt except the continual debt of loving one another. And so Jesus says, pray. Pray for the reconciliation to happen at times when someone has refused to accept your apology. Pray for God to soften their hearts and help yours. And then come and offer your gift. Do you remember why you left your gift? You left it before the altar. Come and present it. Because the problem was not with the offering. The problem was with the heart. With the heart. That's where the issue always is. Agree with your adversary quickly, verse 5. Make friends with your opponent at law. That is the adversary. Make friends with them. Settle the matter out of court. Make friends with your accuser. Settle matters quickly. In fact, while you are on the way, don't let the matter go to court. Keep short accounts. Those ones in the accounting and finance world know that. Keep short accounts, things run easier for you. Christians should not take each other to court, brothers and sisters. You say, you don't believe me? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 8. You would rather be defrauded, the Bible says. You would rather be wronged and leave the matter with God. Believers should settle matters between or among themselves and keep it out of court, thus avoiding prosecution, conviction, and imprisonment. And our hearts should be geared towards reconciliation. That is God's heart to reconcile, that is to reconcile God and sinful people through Jesus Christ. That should also be our heart, reconciliation. If you do not settle matters quickly, Jesus says your opponent will hand you over to the judge, the judge will hand you over to the guard, and the guard will, hand you, will throw you into prison. 
And what will happen, you will not get there. Get out of there. The prison that is talked about here is a debtor's prison. A prison that was specific to those people who have refused to pay a certain amount that they owe someone. You will not get out of there until you have paid the entire amount. That may sound easier today, but it was harder then. Money was more scarce, still scarce. But it was not easier to just call someone and tell them, come and bail me out of prison. You had no money in prison. Today, in some prisons, you can actually be able to earn an income. So settle matters quickly, Jesus says. Anger may lead to murder. Being angry may lead you to kill someone. And because no one ever falls into sin, we walk in it into it one step at a time. Nip it at the bud. Deal with it while it is still small. There was this boy who was sentenced to die. And on the day of his execution, he, had, he said, some of you may have heard this, he said, I have one request. I want to see my mother. And that was a peculiar request. It was an unusual request. But it was his last dying wish. And his mother was brought. And he told his mother, I want to whisper something into your ear. And then he beat his mother's ear. And beat it so well that he pulled it out and spit it on the floor. Quite dramatic, isn't it? But he said, Mom, you never told me what was right from what was wrong when I was a boy. You let me go after my own way. You let me do whatever I want. When I stole, when I lied, when I was angry, when I killed, when I did all manner of things, you never warned me. Even for our children, while they are still small, we teach them, this is right and this is wrong. Lest in the future, a bigger issue should come up and your child should tear your ear out of your head. That's anger. Number two, adultery, verse 27. You have heard, once again, it has been said, we shall not commit adultery. Where do we read that? In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. You shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment. What is required in the seventh commandment? The same people asked themselves millenniums ago, or rather, century, um, uh, what is it? Uh, what is a hundred years? Centuries ago. What is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, in speech, and in behavior. Our own and our neighbor's chastity, preserving it. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment, they wondered. Is there something forbidden? Yes. The seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, unchaste words, and unchaste Actions, anything that is sexually immoral in, in words, in thoughts, or in action. God's command prohibiting adultery covers all manner of immoral acts, all manner of unchaste acts. Extramarital unfaithfulness, premarital sex, homosexuality, rape, bestiality, self-pleasure, incest, watching sexual acts, and so on. Whatever opposes God's design for marriage is covered in that one commandment, in the seventh commandment. Now you ask, what is God's design for marriage? It is simple. One man marrying one woman, both remaining faithful to each other, 
working out their own sanctification together in view of God's love and faithfulness till death do them part. Isn't that the vow that you took during your wedding? It is simple, isn't it? But it is not easy. Any married couple will agree to that. Two sinners coming together. Ha, if you cannot not deal properly with your own sin, what about when you have someone's sin with you every day in your house to deal with? And so the couple needs Christ's grace, Christ's grace every day. This is God's design for marriage, and, and no human being designed that institution. Not me, not you, no one. Only he can therefore dictate what it is from what it is not. Not the media, not society, not religious, political, civil leaders, not you, not me, no one except God can dictate what marriage is. Sometimes people ask, uh, what is the difference between adultery that we have read and fornication? It is as simple as adultery is sexual unfaithfulness in marriage and fornication is sex between unmarried people. The faithful God expects faithfulness from those he made in his own image and likeness. So you have heard it has been said. Jesus says, I say unto you, listen to the person who is thinking, I have kept this commandment perfectly, by the way. If you look on a woman to last after her, Jesus says, you have committed adultery with her already in his heart. I can't stand and foolishly justify myself. Jesus says, look at the spirit of the law. Oh God, I am not guilty before you have been perfect and righteous. Really? Verse 28, the issue is not looking, for eyes have no curtains. The issue is looking to last. The problem is not external, the eyes. The problem is internal. It's the heart. The enemy is not out there. The enemy is in here. With you every moment. Adultery is a heart issue. It's not a pointing a finger issue. He made me do it. She made me do it. It made me do it. No. But how shall I know when I have looked to last and committed adultery? Hmm? How shall I know? By the words, by the thoughts, and by the actions that follow. Once you have looked, since God gave you eyes, and you have to see. It is by what follows after that. Let's take an illustration from the scriptures. Look at this, number one, the source of sin. Okay? Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Evil thought number one, murder. Has Jesus talked about that? Mm -hmm. Number two, adulteries, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. So that's why no one can say, he, she, it, made me do it. You did it because you wanted to. You did it because you liked to. You did it because you chose to do it. It's the source of sin. It's in the heart. Look at this, number two, the development of sin. James chapter 1, verse 14 to verse 15. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed to his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, what does it lead to? To death. Death is the natural consequence of sin. It is always the wages of sin. 
So that is, that's the development of sin. Number three, an example from Scripture. A simple example, Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 to verse 5. David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Nothing wrong with that. It is his palace. He can walk wherever he wants. He is the king. But from there, he saw a woman bathing. What did Jesus say? Whoever looks. David should have immediately turned away and left. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance, but no, he starts looking to lust. Even observing her appearance, how she looks. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, mm, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It is, it is for some reason, if for some reason David had not turned and left Surely now when he hears that this is someone's wife, he should stop. He should think of the 10th commandment, isn't it, to start with. You shall not covet. Covet what? Among other things, the 10th commandment prohibits us from coveting our neighbor's wives, our neighbor's husbands. So he should have stopped there. But, verse 5, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. He looks... He lasts, he commits adultery. Can you see there's some kind of a progression? Number four, not only the source of sin, the development from sin, and an, and an example from Scripture, the antidote to sin. What then shall we do? Well, at least two things, maybe three. Job chapter 31 and verse 1, another well-known simple verse I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then shall I gaze at a young woman, at a virgin? Notice gaze, not merely see, but gaze. Another antidote, Genesis chapter 39 and verse 12. Also well known about Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. He left his garment in her hands and fled and went outside. Sometimes the solution is as simple as that. Just run away. Just go outside. Just go where there are other people. In a crowd, it is harder to commit sexual immorality, isn't it? As, but it is easier when you are by yourself. So sometimes just run away. If someone meets you on the road running away, tell them there's something I'm running away from. I may not tell you, but... <laughs> what remedy does Jesus give? It is similar to Job's, but especially Joseph's. Jesus says, take drastic measures. Take drastic measures. In the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So Jesus says, hey, if your right eye offends you, just gouge it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Drastic measures. If you do not check your last, it will lead to actual physical adultery. As I said, no one falls into sexual sin. People walk into it one step at a time. And Jesus uses a hyperbole to bring this out. He does not mean that if you are blind or maimed, you cannot last. After all, 
Lust comes neither from the eye nor from the hand, but from the heart, doesn't it? But that everything that is a cause of temptation should be amputated. He's advocating for spiritual amputation. Radically, regardless of the cost, it doesn't matter. Later on, he will say it is better to enter into heaven maimed without one hand, without one eye, than go into hell with your entire body intact. So amputate it radically regardless of the cost. Otherwise, it will lead to sin, and sin will lead to death. For sin is always deadly. Here is the flow of thought. Someone may pridefully argue that they have earned merit before God because they have obeyed the law of God by never committing physical adultery. This is where we stopped last week in verse 20. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of God. Someone may claim that they have observed all outward aspects of righteousness. That is merely seeking to earn righteousness externally. Jesus says adultery is an issue of the heart. If you think that you are counted righteous in God's eyes by your own effort, learn from the Pharisees. They did not portray a right understanding of God's righteousness. Jesus explains even more. Verse 31. Third point, annulment. Anger, adultery, annulment, divorce. It has been said, whoever puts away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say, it has been said, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 to verse 4. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, out of his house, sorry, and so on and so forth. You can read it on your own time. In Jesus' day, these pharisaical rabbis were divided into two. The Hillel group and the Shammai group. Remember, at this time, the society was male-dominated and only men could commence divorce. Only men could initiate annulment of a marriage. The Hillel group allowed divorce for basically any reason, any reason you can think of at all that you're not happy with your wife, you can give her a divorce. All they required was that you issue her with a certificate of divorce. As long as a man did that, he was free from any obligation. That's just all. Just give her. Here's a certificate. Go. So the only condition, he was free from that woman. The other group, the Shammai group, required divorce only for marital unfaithfulness. They also did not prohibit marrying someone else after getting divorced. So two groups, two views. Jesus says in verse 32, whoever shall put away his wife except for the reason of fornication and whoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Now here are two groups in Jesus' day with two views. There are always opposing views to things, aren't there? There are always differences of conviction. Even in modern day, right now, we are not all convinced of the same things. We even read the same Bible but we come to different convictions about matters. 
Or at One Life Church, you say, we have to baptize your child by immersion. But you may be sitting there and say, no, that's not necessary. The scriptures talk about if we sprinkle, that is enough. Aren't we reading the same scriptures? But at times we have different convictions of things. Today we have two views on divorce and marriage. First, there are Christians who advocate remarriage should divorce happen as a result of unchastity. Some people say that if a husband and a wife divorce, either of them can remarry if it was because of marital unfaithfulness. There are also Christians who believe in the permanence of marriage. Once married, it is until death do you part. If you separate, if you divorce, everyone must remain as they are. Otherwise, you will be committing adultery. And this both sobers up those getting married and it leaves hope for restoration if divorce happens. At the point where you are being asked before you get married, are you really sure you want to marry this person? Are you sure? Ever had a pastor asking that until you are annoyed or offended? What is wrong with you? We are in love with each other. We are ready to settle down. Ten years later, you are like, "Mm, maybe I should have thought about it a bit more. Sometimes people ask, Pastor, I'm tired of my wife. I'm tired of my husband. I think I made a mistake. My, my answer to that has always been, maybe, maybe you made a mistake. But God never makes mistake. Never. If he brought you two together, he is sure to keep you two together and to sustain you through all the difficulties of life. Furthermore, do you think marrying someone else will make it easier? You will be in the same place you are whatever number of years in marriage later. Because the problem is right there in the heart. So seek the Lord. Ask him for grace and he will help you. So if you're married, I say that. Unless there is a life-threatening situation in your marriage and you feel we have to separate. So there are two positions in terms of remarriage and divorce today. Jesus states God's position. God's will is for marriage, is for the marriage covenant not to be broken. Later on, he will say in chapter 19 and verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. God permits it, not prescribes it. He allows it, not approves it. Due to the hardness of our heart, not the happiness of God. God's heart is soft, and so should yours be. Moses conceded to it in order to protect the divorced woman, not to legitimize divorce. And this permission is only on one in one situation that Jesus states here. The word fornication there in Greek is pornea. Does it sound familiar? Yes, because of the pornographic industry. Because as one pastor recently said, we are living in a pornographic culture. That's a reality. It is harder to live, this, to live out this command today because it's the culture that we are living in. Another t- pastor termed it as a sexual revolution. It's where we are now in human history. It is unfortunate, it is hard, yet it is the reality. And this commandment couldn't be more applicable than it is today. Pornea is the general term for sexual sin with any other person than either your husband or wife. Someone may feel validly justified to leave his wife or her husband because they have been unfaithful. 
But if you were to examine yourself closer, you will come to the conclusion that you need to be more merciful. If you examine the words of Jesus closer, you will come to the conclusion that you need to be more gracious. Let me give you five reasons why. Then I finish. Yes, you have been hurt by your husband or wife. But consider first, how has God treated you all the times you've been unfaithful to him? Does he always accept you? Does he always receive you back? Or does he forsake you? Think about all the times you've been unfaithful to God. Second, what is the heart of God concerning this matter of marriage and divorce? It is reconciliation and restoration. That is God's heart. That is God's purpose. That is God's intention. When God saved you, he didn't intend to divorce you at some point along your journey of salvation. He intended to bring you to heaven someday, and he will. We know that. Because every work he starts, he must finish. I am confident of that. Paul was confident of that. You must be confident of that. Therefore, intend to take your marriage all the way till God takes you home or till death do you part. Third, is marriage tied to the law or is it tied to creation? It's tied to creation, isn't it? Jesus said from the beginning in Matthew chapter 19, it wasn't so. For just when God had created everything, he brought man and woman together. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And whatever God puts together, no man shall put asunder. Tied to creation, not the law. So you cannot circumnavigate it with the law. God instituted this way before. Fourth, evaluate yourself. How many times have you been adulterous yourself? And you may say none. Then again, remember Jesus' words. Have you looked at a man or a woman with lust? Then you've also committed adultery in your heart. And that leads you to be more gracious. Not to overlook the situation. I'm not trying to downplay the effect of adultery in marriage. No, neither does Jesus. But it is to evaluate yourself closely and wisely before you make a decision. You are not equally guiltless. It was not physical, but in God's eyes, it is adulterous. Fifth, what is the consequence of that separation if you do decide to separate or divorce? End of verse 32. Everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, except for the cause of sexual immorality, except because of marital unfaithfulness, that person makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And you go home, read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you'd like to dig deeper into this issue. But there is no happy end to divorce. Is there? There is no happy end. There is no happy end. But there can be a happy end if restoration should be desired, prayed for, wanted, and hopefully achieved. There are millions of marriages that have survived this. And they are stronger today than they were in the past. Yours can also survive if it is at that point. And therefore, if your wife or husband is repentant and is willing to work on the issue, you can trust God for grace. You can. You can heal and forgive. Your marriage can be restored to even better glory than before. I'm not saying it is easy. It's a journey. Daryl, who was leading the service here, 
uh, has studied counseling and has done counseling and is quite good at counseling. And so is Ari behind there, husband of, um, wife of um, Elder Dr. Jeff. They can tell you it is not easy, but it is possible by God's grace. You have heard that it has been said. So all manner of things pertaining anger, marriage, and divorce are said by well-meaning people, media, celebrities, socialites, parents, friends, pastors, books, movies, and so on. None of these are authoritative. But I say, what Jesus says is authoritative. It is without error. It is without mistake. You can trust him. The way may be dark and dreary. The path may not be clear. The situation may seem impossible, but not to him. He restored your life, didn't he? He can also restore your marriage. So whose report will you believe? What has been said or what Jesus says? Our gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your steadfastness to we who you saved by the blood of your son Jesus Christ, his precious blood that was shed on the cross so that we may receive forgiveness of sin. Thank you for being faithful to us all these days or weeks or months or years. Also for your word that you have given this morning. Talking about anger, help us to evaluate ourselves and think, oh, I have never committed murder, but have I been angry with my brother? Have I been, have I been angry with my sister, with my wife, with my child, with my husband, with my son, with my employees, with my employer? That is a journey towards murder. It is, it is as bad as killing. Help us to repent, to leave our gift, to present our gift at the altar, but leave it there should you remind us of that and go and settle the matter quickly. Jesus, you also talk about difficult issues of adultery and divorce, issues that touch on the heart. And this is what you intend to do from verse 21. You say that blessed are the pure in heart. Then you start talking about the condition of, the, of our heart in regards to sexual and marital faithfulness. Help us who are living in this generation, in this time. These are perilous, wicked, immoral times. There is no excuse there to sin. But there is reason after reason to pray more. To fall before your throne more. And to take drastic measures to avoid any appearance of sexual sin in our life. It doesn't matter what people will say. It doesn't matter how people will think. But like you said, take radical measures especially in our time today. Help my listeners this day that they may put this to heart. You say that blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We want to see you and we know that we must be pure in our heart. Help any marriage that is on the brink of divorce, tintering on the, on the brink of annulling the marriage. Help them. Please bring them back together. Help them sort out the issues. Reconcile. Come back together even stronger than they were in the past. Your God who is able to do that, your God who has done that in the past, your God who does that even today. May we listen to what you say. 
rather than what people or the television or the internet says. For your word is not only authoritative, it is also compassionate. It is also full of love. And what you say is right. These things we know we are able to do by your grace. Give us strength day by day. Give us strength with each passing moment to be able to bear all the trials that come our way in these three areas of anger, adultery, and annulment. In Jesus' name we pray.